when Paul went to this town of Thessalonica, which is still there today, and he preached the gospel. You can read it in Acts 17. Those who became Christians, those who were converted, were so notable, it was so striking that the reports went far and wide. <clears throat> Even into the next province, we might say that uh, people converted in Liverpool, in Lancashire, the reports went to Yorkshire and, and Northumberland, far away. It was such an amazing thing. And it's these reports that were one reason why Paul was convinced they were true Christians. I mean, after all, you go and preach, people say, I believe in Christ. Quickly you lead them. How do you really know they're Christians? Well, the reports proved it to him, and he was sure, as he tells us in verse 4, that they're loved of God and chosen by God. When he gets to the end of this chapter 1, he informs us of what made their conversion, the things he heard about them. Don't look here for a full description of what a Christian is. There's nothing here, for example, about justification. But nonetheless, this is a true description in verses 9 and 10 of what it means to be converted or what it means to be a Christian. And I want you to see, if you don't know already, that being converted is far more than coming to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's important. It's vital. But it's only a part. And it's certainly far more than being able to say, well, I love Jesus. I trust you'll see the, the fullness of what it means to be a Christian by this very simple uh, definition in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In fact, he uses three verbs, uh, action words, to describe what happened. He says, this is the report we heard, middle of verse 9, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's what he heard about them. That's the report that went far and wide. So this evening, let's look at those three things that are there. Such a vital thing, my friends, because the Bible says that on the day of judgment, that final day that's coming, many will be deceived. It's simply what it says. Many will say, Lord, Lord. In other words, I'm so happy to see you. Welcome me into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I'll have to tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. That's a serious thing, isn't it? When the Lord himself says, many will be like that. And the only way for you to make sure, look at the Bible. 
What does the Bible say a true Christian is? And that way you can make sure that you won't be deceived on that day. So the first thing here is that you turn to God from idols. You turn. That's the uh, active word. To God from idols. The society of the Greeks in Thessalonica, of the Romans, was simply full of idolatry. You, many of you will know about the a plethora of altars in Athens. When Paul went to Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the idols, even an idol to an unknown God, just in case they had uh, missed out one. In Ephesus, he comes face to face with the idol Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was built around that uh, stone representing her. If you read the letter to the Corinthians, what a problem these Corinthian Christians had because of the legacy of idolatry. Can we eat meat from the marketplace? We know that meat was first sacrificed to an idol. Now it's being sold. Can we do that? And so there are chapters there about the problem of idolatry. Don't think of an idol just as something up there that occasionally someone would bow to. Idolatry was a way of life. It involved the whole of a person's life. Nothing like we have today where you separate uh, religion and life. Religion was life. Life was religion. And so at birth, at death, the idols were involved. At puberty, at marriage, in sickness, at work with the, the guilds and wanting the blessing of the gods upon your work. Of course, I've seen this in Kenya, different kind of idolatry. It's more uh, spirits. But they have such a hold on their devotees that people are constantly afraid lest they provoke the idol or the spirit behind the idol. So they constantly have to placate the anger and court the favor of the God in everything they do. And to abandon the idol is to provoke the full force of vengeance, not just from the God, but from society. You see the point? That idolatry is a way of life. And so, as Paul came to Thessalonica and preached against the idols, that they are a delusion, then the Thessalonians came to see that if the idols are nothing, then you can't commune with them. You can't look to them to strengthen you, certainly not to save you from your sins. Listen to what he said, for example, not now in Thessalonica, but in 
Lystra because they thought there that Paul and Barnabas were gods. He says, men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of like nature with you. <clears throat> and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Clearly, this is his message wherever he went, isn't it? Turn from these vain things. They're empty. The prophets in the Old Testament, how often they mock the idols. Isaiah has one poignant passage where he mocks the man who cuts down a tree and with half of it he makes firewood and warms himself. And with the other half, he makes an idol and overlays it with precious metal and he bows down to it as if it's his God. The Thessalonians needed to turn from their idols. You know, it's not surprising that the report went far and wide. To turn from the idol that you and your ancestors have worshipped for generations, that's unheard of. And so the gossip goes, doesn't it? Hey, do you know what some people have done in Thessalonica? They're no longer bowing before those idols. They're no longer going to the temple. They're no longer doing these rites. So this means that the first step in becoming a Christian is to turn away from your past life. Whatever it was that you were devoted to, my friends, it's a radical thing. It's not simply adding some activity to your week that you didn't before. It's not saying, well, instead of going to the idol temple on a Thursday, I'll go to the Christians on a Sunday. It's far more than that. If it's a matter of personal idols, if you were a Hindu, you would destroy those idols. You'd never visit the temple again. There'll be no more prayers or offerings to your God. There'll be no more participation in uh, ceremonies uh, to bless your work, the, the guilds. Danger is that you don't think that you have an idol. Of course, probably none of us literally have an idol in our room, although I suppose it's possible. But idols don't have to be literal statues. It's statues. An idol is anything that you live for, that you trust in. Covetousness is idolatry. Because what you covet is what you desire. It's what you want, what moves you and makes you live from day to day whether you trust in false religion or worldly possessions or a political ideology or even religious observances, your family, even yourself. Because what does Jesus say? If you don't 
hate your own life, you can't be my disciple. Now, I could have chosen many specific examples. I've chosen one. It's obvious why I've chosen it. It's football. Football is an idol to many. I've told you before, Premier League is an idol to many in Kenya. How many Facebook likes I get for Chelsea or Manchester United that come through to me from Kenya. They don't know who they're sending it to today. But when football, when Liverpool enters into every part of your life, there's something wrong, my friend. When your life becomes the game, I wonder what uh, some Christians do on a Sunday, because many games are on Sunday, aren't they? Of course, you're in church, but maybe the first thing you do when you go home, evening service, if it's in the afternoon, let's find out how Liverpool did. Or maybe it's even uh, on the phone while you're here in, at the end of the service. It occupies money, doesn't it? It costs a lot of money to follow football. Clothes. Those are great clothes in Kenya. Premier League football shirts. Conversations. Posts on Facebook. I'm just giving you one example. When football has that magnitude in your life, has it not become an idol? With me... You won't believe it, perhaps. I think stamps, postage stamps, were my idol. In the sense that day after day, especially on a Sunday when I was a young man, that's what I loved to do. I thought it was very beneficial. You know, all idols are not evil, are they? But it's putting something which is created in the position where God should be. I gave up my stamp collection. I didn't just put it somewhere. Gave it up. Because that's what you have to do with an idol. You have to get rid of it. That's the great change that comes over you when you become a Christian. When you're converted. It's not just a turning away from something, of course. It's a turning to God. The living and true God. God now takes the place that the idols used to have. Instead of giving the full allegiance to the idol, you now give the full allegiance to the true and the living God. You know, this is such a, a common phrase in the scriptures. The people in Lydda, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 35, this is what it says. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, Athenaeus, who had been raised from the dead, and they turned to the Lord. In Antioch, where uh, Barnabas was, chapter 11 and verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. It's what the Gentiles did on the first missionary journey. It's reported in Acts 15 and verse 19. Let's not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. This finally was Paul's own ministry. 
He describes it in his testimony in Acts chapter 26. And he says, this is what I was given by the Lord to open the eyes of the Gentiles, verse 18, so that they may turn from darkness to light and turn from the power of Satan to God. You turn to God, you turn to God, the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who sent his Son as the Savior of sinners, the God who has given the one true, sure way of salvation in his Son. And so what you looked for in your idol, whatever it was, you now look for in God. You, you look for forgiveness. You look for new life. You look for spiritual resources. You look for strength. You look for wisdom. God now is the one to whom you turn in your need. He's the one to whom you look as a source of joy and peace and comfort. It's all very straightforward, isn't it? It's all very obvious, really. But so often this is the response. It's too hard for me to leave my sins, my idols. Or I'm afraid that if I say I'm leaving today and make an effort to leave tomorrow, I'll turn back to my sins and my idols. And of course, humanly speaking, Seems very reasonable. And maybe for some of you, it's made you stay where you are and not do what you know you ought to do. But my, my friend, when you turn from idols to God, you're turning to God. The one who can help you in your need. That's why you turn to him. In your helplessness, you say, he is the one who can help me. And you're turning to him because you have been convinced that you must turn or perish. You've been convinced that wrath from God is coming. Judgment for sin is coming. You've been convinced that Christ is an able and willing Savior. And then you say, but I don't know if I can do it. If I say I've left my sins, will it be real? My friend, you're turning to God and he will enable you. You can't do it yourself. Because there will be struggles. There will be temptations. But when you turn to God, he will give you his Holy Spirit to increase those desires, to give you strength to overcome every temptation. So I'm saying to you, if you've got that far, if you're sitting here this evening and you're saying, yeah, it's true, I, I must turn from my, my idolatrous way of life. I, I've, not, uh, I've not come to God. I've not put him in the place in my life that I should. And I know that Christ is able to save me. Then turn to him and he'll give you all that you need to make that real. So that's the first thing. In true conversion, you turn 
to God from your idols. A real change. Many people would stop there, wouldn't they? But that's only number one of three. <laughs> the second one, at the end of verse nine, is to serve. Turn, serve. Serve the true and living God. It's a strong word, serve. It's the word you get slave from. Act like a slave, because the word slave has such negative connotations that we don't like to use it. But the Bible doesn't seem to have that uh, hesitation to do so. Let's use the word service. The truly converted person now turns to God in order to serve him like a servant to a master, like a willing slave. Why? Because he bought me with his blood. He's made me his. Now, if you're a true Christian, you don't have any problem with saying, I'm a servant or even a slave of the Lord. Do you? Paul gladly says at the very beginning of his letter to the Romans, Paul, a bond slave. He rejoices in it. To him, that's his title. It's not Apostle Paul. We may say it's bond slave Paul. It's honorable to have the Lord as our master. Or look at uh, or Romans chapter 6 and verse 22, this whole passage on this theme. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. That is what we are. He's the true God. Well, then he's worthy to be said. People slay for idols. How foolish. But how wise to be this kind of servant to the true God. He's the living God. He's not a God who, like an idol, has to be carried. He can be trusted. Now, you know, this is what makes true conversion such an identifiable thing. You can't miss it in somebody. When someone's converted, it's going to be clear, at least over some period of time, because God now becomes the center of life. And everything is done to please God. Everything. When we met the man or the woman who was to become our future spouse, you know, everything changed, didn't it? I don't see it in your faces, but it did, didn't it? You know, it affected your lunchtime, didn't it? Um, and what you did after work, <laughs> thank you, did. There was someone now who came into your life around whom you were going to center your life, humanly speaking. That's a faint picture of what it means when we become a Christian. 
when those relationships begin, it's almost as if nobody else matters. And when we become a Christian, it's almost as if there's only one person that matters now. That's God. That's not the whole truth, is it? Because we have to uh, live before people. But now, it's prayer to God that matters. Now it's the word of God that matters. Now it's the worship of God that matters. Now it's witness about God. That's what matters. Now it's benefiting my fellow humans with my talk. No more filthy talk. I emphasize talk because we do a lot of talking. And that's one of the great changes that's going to come over someone who's converted. We now walk away from filthy talk or rebuke it. We'll consider now all the activities that we do and those which are unprofitable spiritually. They will go because we're serving the true and the living God and people will take notice. Some will call you a fanatic. Others will want to know what's happened to you and that's your great opportunity. My friends, if something like that has not happened, has there been a conversion, honestly? If your family members haven't noticed a change in you, have you really been converted? I want you this evening, honestly ask yourself, is your whole life 24 hours, seven days, 365 in a year. Is it devoted to serve the God who sent his son for you? The God who has declared his will in the scriptures so that you know what he wants. There's no doubt about it. Now, are you really serious about the will of the one you call your master? Are you searching his word? When you hear preaching, are you eager to put that into practice? Back to the language of slavery. If you were to go to a slave market, sadly, they're still there, aren't they? But if you were to go to a Roman slave market, how could you identify which master a slave belonged to? It's very easy, isn't it? When a man barks an order, see who jumps to it to obey. That's the slave, and that's the master. But if a man doesn't move when a master barks an order, then that man is not the slave of that master. He's a slave of somebody else. There's the turning to God from idols. There's the serving the true and the living God. And you know, there's another thing. And again, uh, how little this is thought about in terms of conversion, but it's here. Verse 10. And to wait, there's your action verb, and to wait for his son from heaven. Turn to God, serve God, and now wait. I say it's an action verb. Actually, waiting is action. 
It's not sleeping. We know as Christians, when we've been converted, we've only received the first installment of all that God has for us. We know it's part of the gospel message that we'll receive the full inheritance, the full experience of being the children of God when Jesus Christ returns. And to use the language that we often use, we can't wait for it. We are so expectant, we're so eager. We are now waiting, in that sense, for his son from heaven. We love him, so we serve him. But we know that our service is very imperfect. And we long for that time when we'll have new bodies and we'll serve him without sin in his presence forevermore. See, if you really know God, if you've really turned to God, then you know how far short you fall and it makes you long for the return of Christ. These Thessalonians had such a hope in the return of Christ that in the second letter we read in verse 6 that there are those of chapter 3, the second letter, there were those who were idle. They said, what's the point of working? Jesus is coming soon. Sounds good, but they were told that if you don't work, you're not to eat. But that was the intensity of the desire of these early Christians. Now, of course, we know that when he comes, it will be a day of wrath. Verse 10, he delivers us from the wrath to come. We know that that wrath will be poured out on the un ungodly. But we know he will rescue us, he'll deliver us. And there'll be no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Again, going back to two people who started a relationship together. And they, they fix a day for their wedding. It may be six months in advance. And you can guarantee, can't you, that if you were to overhear them talking... Most likely it'd be about that wedding day and all the plans they're making for it and all the hopes and desires they have for their lives together after. Isn't it? What a great day that's going to be. One of the great days of their lives after their conversion. Well, if we're expecting the Lord Jesus to return, should that not be what we're doing? Shouldn't we be talking about it? Eager for it to happen. Asking ourselves, what's going to happen on that day? How can I prepare for it? What's it going to be like afterwards? So that the whole of our lives is now lived under this shadow of waiting for the Son of God from heaven. John, in his letter, 1 John 3, 3 says, if you are waiting for Christ to come, then 
the evidence will be that you'll purify yourself as he is pure, just like the bride gets ready for that day to have everything just as perfect as possible. We don't want to be ashamed when he comes. We want to be like him as possible even now. So I say to you, those of us who profess to be Christians, the return of Christ must be important. Otherwise, we're not Christians. And it ought to be far more important to us. Students who are not concerned to know the dates of their exams are likely to be very careless about study and preparation, aren't they? But when they know it's coming, it's just two weeks ago, that's enough impetus for them to, to start sweating. Exams are onerous, aren't they? But the coming of Christ is glorious. To see our Savior, to be like him. What a hope that is worthy of meditation. So let's learn to view everything in the light of the return of Christ. Let me challenge you here then. Start to think about your life. Think about who you are friends with. Even on Facebook, most of our friends are there, aren't they? Uh, so it's said. Think about who you want to marry. The job you want. You young people, you think about it. Think about the promotion you desire. Think about where you want to live, the studies you want to do, what you do in your spare time. This is my question to you. If Christ were to come now, would you be happy with those choices that you are making? See, that's how it impacts, isn't it? I want to be friend with this person. What if Christ now were to come? Would I still be happy with that choice? Because I want to please him in all that I do. Remember, my friends, that Jesus said again and again, he's coming at an hour we don't expect. That's the one thing we know about the coming of Christ that we don't know when he's coming. Could be today, tomorrow, or a thousand years' time. But we need to be ready. We need to be those, if we're genuine Christians, who are waiting for his son from heaven because he's raised him from the dead and he's appointed him as the judge and so he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And if you're a Christian, you're ready. And even now, what are we crying? What are we saying? We're saying, Amen. So be it. Come, Lord Jesus. May you be one who has turned and who is serving the true and the living God and who's truly waiting for his son from heaven. And then you can be sure that you are a genuine Christian. Let us pray.
Please search our hearts, O Lord, for we are open and naked before you with whom we have to do. Let none of us be deceived, O Lord. Be pleased to encourage those who know they must turn. Help them to turn, Lord. To turn humbly to you. Find in you all that they need for life and for godliness. Oh Lord, please bless your word. Encourage us, your people, that we might all the more be eagerly waiting for our Saviour to come. We ask these things in his name. Amen.